Want to teach your kids financial literacy, but not sure where to start? Greenlight can help. With Greenlight, parents can keep an eye on kids' spending and saving, while kids and teens use a card of their own to build money confidence. As a parent, you can send instant money transfers, set up chores, automate allowance, and more. It's a convenient way to run your household, customized to your family's needs, and the easy way to raise financially smart kids. Get started with Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash odyssey. Bomber describes the real-life manhunt for a serial bomber. The events are sometimes graphic and intended for a mature audience. Listener discretion is advised. Last time on Bomber. Once we find this guy, we've got to get a SWAT team there. We've got to take him down. We cannot let him get away. We have got to get this guy now. You know, it got to a point where you were just going on adrenaline um, because you had to keep up with, with what was going on in that final three-day period. I'm Jason Puckett, and this is Bomber. Into the flames, I laid you down. Of course my heart was breaking out. Tuesday, March 20th, 2018. We don't know it yet in the newsroom, but 23-year-old Mark Anthony Condit has been identified as the Austin Bomber. It's almost three weeks after the first bomb exploded, and Condit's house just outside of Austin is being watched by police as night falls. Investigators have decided to wait until morning to move in and make an arrest, but they're not sure if he's even there. ATF Special Agent in Charge, Fred Milanowski. We're only a couple hours from the Mexico border. Um, the last thing we want to do is work this entire case and finally identify the suspect, um, and that get out into the public and he, you know, hits the road, and we're chasing him, and we're chasing him to, you know, Mexico or Central or South America. I mean, just all those things are going through your head that we need to, to try to be tight on this. And then back at the command center, there's a buzz of excitement. Condit makes a mistake. We've got an order on his phone. He just turned it on. And so we know where his phone is. Now, his phone had been off all day. And so now we know where he is, and he's a half a mile from my hotel. Milanowski is literally just around the corner from the suspect's location, a parking lot of a hotel in Round Rock, Texas. That's another area just outside of Austin. The news is like an electric shock to the frayed nerves of the team of investigators. Exhaustion is now mixed with adrenaline and focus. FBI Special Agent in Charge, Chris Combs. We knew we were close. We knew we finally had a suspect, and we desperately wanted to stop him. And it just went on and on. And finally, we called it a night because it just got so late. And then literally we all went home and the minute we got back to the hotels, they found him and we had to roll out again. So that was probably the longest day I've ever worked in my life. Nobody wants to stop, you know, not, not when you're the, that close. You know, everyone, you know, every investigator, everyone's been an investigator more than, you know, five minutes is smelling that we're, we're closer than end here and I want to be part of it. And so um, that was the most difficult part was trying to get people to get some sleep and some downtime, particularly in those final four days. As the news of the bomber's location comes in, Austin police, the SWAT team, ATF and FBI agents, members of the Lone Star Fugitive Task Force, they're all closing in on that hotel in Round Rock. A Texas Ranger was with us in the command post. I called him and said, we need every resource you have to go to that hotel and secure the scene so that we can start moving SWAT teams. Being as, as dangerous as he was, we didn't want normal cops coming up on that car. We wanted to make sure we had a, a tactically trained team. So I asked DPS, get up there, surround that hotel, we're coming. This is where training and planning comes into play. Everyone knows their job, 
but there's still a lot of uncertainty. Interim Austin Police Chief Brian Manley had been at the command center when the news came in. I responded directly from our command center straight to the scene up in Round Rock and stood by in a nearby parking lot awaiting for what we were hoping was going to be a successful apprehension of the suspect. For Brian Manley, it must have felt like a long drive up to Round Rock with time to think about what was about to go down. Thinking of all the different ways that this may transpire, you know that this is an individual who is willing to kill innocent people, who is willing to kill random people, and the likelihood of him being armed, either with a traditional firearm or with more explosive devices, knowing that however this played out, it was going to be a very dangerous operation. The scene had probably been on his mind over and over again over the past 20 days, but now it's actually happening. A serial bomber, a 23-year-old with seemingly no motive and no consideration for human life, is sitting in a pickup truck outside a hotel in the middle of the night. Members of the Austin Police SWAT team also get the call about Condit's location. Several of us were, were sent home, and it was on the way home, just in that short span of time from leaving work to getting home, that we received some critical updates from some of the investigative units and some updates about the potential location of the suspect. And so the plan was to get Austin police SWAT team in place with their what's called a Bearcat or its armored vehicle so that they can execute an arrest warrant behind cover from safety of, of the Bearcat. Like a lot of special units within police departments, the SWAT team is a close-knit and devoted team. They train for countless hours to be ready for something just like this. Training together 40-plus hours a week, being on an on-call rotation, always being called back on holidays, Thanksgiving, Christmas, whatever it may be, and, and spending the, that time together uh, late at night, early in the mornings, you develop that close bond. The man in charge of the team is Sergeant Brandon Ellsworth. Our guys' training and mission is to save lives. And so with that being said, everything that we do, they, they put that first and foremost in, in their training and their tactics that they use. That's, that's what's ingrained in these guys, and that's what makes the, the team uh, successful, is their ability to act in dangerous situations with the end result being saving, saving lives. Two vans and 11 SWAT officers were mobilized to a location near the hotel. Uh, we were a few blocks from the hotel to where we could uh, quickly move to that location if we needed to, but we were also out of sight from uh, being visible to him and just in a react position to where we could move. We were trying to get our tactical vehicles. They afford ballistic protection and would have allowed for a much safer operation. We were trying to get all of those resources there. Basically, ideally, we would have liked to have contained him uh, early on from a distance and been able to, to deal with him and gain control over him to allow him the ability to uh, peacefully surrender. The SWAT team, police, federal agents, they're all waiting for that tactical vehicle to arrive. The Red Ford Ranger doesn't move, but they're ready if it does. We had already talked about if he moves, you have to take him down because we didn't want him to get away. They keep waiting and watching and waiting some more. When we all were there in the parking lot getting ready to implement our plan, we had got notification that the suspect was leaving the location he was at, the parking lot he was at, and became mobile. That's when we were notified that the suspect was now driving away. The team is in two vans, plus you got the surveillance team, and so they follow him. He gets on the access road or the frontage road. Um, it appears like he's going to try to get on I-35. Once he started moving, we knew that the uh, likelihood of him evading, uh, we're not going to be able to pursue in the vehicles that we were in, obviously. 
Uh, we knew the likelihood of him evading, and again, the public being at risk. In a broad view, this guy could have had devices planted. He could have devices that he was planning to set. So we knew that we had to quickly detain him in order to gain some compliance to, uh, to stop the threat. Everyone's training kicked in. I think we realized the severity of that moment. And I think everyone understood in that moment that there was potentially a high likelihood of him having a device on him. And so we knew in that moment that this, this was likely the, our, our only opportunity here at this moment um, was to hopefully intervene before he hopped on the highway or he potentially went into the city or into a location, a public location, and, and injured more people. And that's when we, we implemented the plan to basically uh, assault the vehicle to, to, to stop it and to stop his mobility from gaining access to, to the general public. Uh, it was really the only option we had at that time. There's helicopter video of what happens next. You can see Condit's truck leaving the hotel parking lot, followed by two vans, and then a convoy of vehicles. The video is pale black and white footage, eerily quiet considering the drama unfolding, but the audio tells the story as Condit's truck begins to pick up speed. Air to ground, he's on the move, back and out now. I got him eastbound, eastbound wall lane, coming up to 35 frontage, going to be taking a right turn southbound on uh, 35 frontage. We're 35 frontage and old settlers, and he's uh, red balled, he's stopped right now. Still red balled at the intersection. All right, we're through the intersection, southbound, still on the uh, frontage from old settlers. Look for the laser, I got it on him. The SWAT vans make a pin maneuver. One van in front of the bomber's truck, the other behind. All right, the van's made contact with him. Van's made contact with him. The Ford Ranger's pinned in and comes to a stop. Once the vehicle stopped and the vans were able to, to, to safely stop, the guys started implementing tactics. Austin SWAT team officers Vincent Garcia and Rob Justison ran toward the passenger side of the suspect's car. The potential risk was there to, for him to have devices. And then... The final blast. Got an explosion. Got an explosion inside the vehicle. You know, it's funny. I, I don't remember hearing the blast. Uh, I saw it. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm sure it was loud at that point. But you're so focused on doing what you can do to help your teammate. Uh, I have a slight rec recollection of hopping out and hearing a loud, what sounded to me like an explosion. Um, had not seen what I'd heard at that time, um, but it was apparent to me it was something other than possibly gunfire or something like that, that that I'm used to through our training and experience. My biggest concern as a sergeant on the team is putting my guys at risk. I saw the explosion, uh, saw the first officer that, that kind of fell back from that explosion. That's the first thing I was doing was checking on him to make sure he was good. The helicopter footage shows a bright, violent flash erupt out of the right side of the truck. The SWAT officer is blown back, but he's okay. You literally had Austin police officers running towards a vehicle that had an explosive device in it. That detonated. That is unbelievable courage. Those are heroes. Inside the vehicle, the bomber is no longer a threat. Mark Anthony Condit is the final victim of his own deadly homemade bomb. Brian Manley was driving in a long convoy of vehicles behind the final blast scene when Mark Condit's life came to an end. He could take a deep breath, but Austin wasn't out of the woods yet. A sense of, of relief in that we had the bomber, but 
you cannot take complete confidence that it's over because we've not yet investigated him to know was he working alone or was he working in concert with other people? Did he place additional devices in the mail or on doorsteps or somewhere else in our community or another community? So there is that sense of relief in that you now have you've at least accounted for the, the primary suspect at that point, but we still had a lot of investigation to do to make sure that this wasn't part of something larger or that there were not more people still involved. Now it's you know, two o'clock, three o'clock in the morning. And again, I got to get people out of bed, come process this scene. We still don't know uh, if he's a lone wolf. Is this guy all by himself, or does he have co-conspirators or other people that have been helping him? Back at the station, we were hearing about the final explosion and sending reporters to the scene. If you were awake and watching the news that night, you would have seen our news director, Tim Ryan, tell Austin the news. It was 3.19 a.m. I'm Tim Ryan. I'm the news director here at KVU, uh, and we have information from Tony Plohetsky, who works for KVU and the Austin American Statesman. A confirmation that the suspect in these bombings is dead. Um, we, we cannot attribute that source right now, but Tony uh, is, is reporting that the suspect is dead. KVU reporter Jay Wallace was our first reporter on the scene of the first blast on March 2nd. He would also be our first reporter on the scene of the final explosion. I've never seen something like this. Just on the highway, you know, I-35, you saw this line of just flashing red and blue lights. Police, the fire department, EMS, SWAT, uh, every single department you can think of, they were there, lined up for maybe half a mile along the highway. Before the sun came up that Wednesday morning, Brian Manley confirmed the news to all of us. You could tell when Manley came over, before he had the press conference, within a swarm of just... I've never seen a a semicircle like that in my life of so many people, reporters and just media. Um, But before he stepped up to the mic, you could see it on his face. You could see it just in how he was talking to people. You couldn't hear what he was saying, but there was a different facial expression. There was a different, there was just a different look to him. As members of the Austin Police Department SWAT team approached the vehicle, The suspect detonated a bomb inside the vehicle, knocking one of our SWAT officers back, and one of our SWAT officers fired at the suspect as well. The suspect is deceased uh, and has significant injuries from a blast that occurred from detonating a bomb inside his vehicle. Manley confirmed what we knew. The bomber was dead. We did learn the officer had fired his weapon, but the blast was the cause of the death. We still didn't know the bomber's name. We cannot name this suspect at this time because he has not been positively identified yet by the medical examiner and next of kin have not yet been notified. But if we thought we'd heard the last of manly safety warnings, we were wrong. I want to continue that message as we stand here this morning, though, because we don't know where this suspect has spent his last 24 hours, and therefore we still need to remain vigilant to ensure that no other packages or devices have been left through the community. We couldn't let our guard down yet, and the investigation was moving into a new phase. As the chief said, we're not done yet. It's a long day ahead. Uh, We are concerned that there may be other packages that are still out there. We need the public to remain vigilant 
especially today as we go through this investigation? As I said, this investigation is ongoing. We want to make sure that we have confirmed that he either acted alone or if there were any accomplices that we identify them. One thing in particular that they were able to obtain was a Google search history from Google showing the different websites that Condit had been searching in recent days. Authorities were able to confirm by looking at that Google search history that Condit was looking up addresses in other places in Austin and in nearby communities as well. And in fact, I'm told that last night that prompted authorities to actually dispatch law enforcement officers to those addresses to warn those homeowners that they may be in danger and to actually check those front porches to ensure that there were no packages there. And there was still not even a hint of a motive. Nothing. Do not know what the motive was behind that. And hopefully as we continue this investigation, we will uncover some facts so that we can try and understand, although this is something that there is no rationale for, but we can try and understand what his motive was. Thank you very much. Before we knew the bomber's name, we learned where his house was. And we knew that police weren't taking any chances. When I first got here this morning around 5 o'clock, the trooper said that they believed that there were people, a person or people inside the house still. And that's one of the reasons that he was almost nervous. He said, you need to get back. You really need to leave. The biggest fear here is perhaps uh, any kind of booby traps. I mean, this is a person that was able to set a tripwire uh, and has uh, sophisticated knowledge of bomb making. And so they want to make sure that when they go into that home that everyone is safe and also they have to wait for a warrant. I think that's one of the reasons why it has taken so long. Mark Condit, turns out, had roommates. And police really didn't know if they were involved or not or had any knowledge of what was going on. And Mark Condit was capable of building deadly bombs, possibly right there inside his home. So as more agents and officers started showing up in Pflugerville at Condit's house, we finally got a name. We were able to learn that the bomber's name was Mark Anthony Condit. He was a 23-year-old man from Travis County. He lived in an Austin suburb called Pflugerville. And so, across Austin, the name Mark Condit was quickly spreading. Along with the news, he had blown himself up early that morning. We went to work trying to learn anything we could about his background. But one of the striking things about the bomber is that his social media footprint was really barren. There was not a lot of information about the bomber out there. Condit's parents lived nearby in the same neighborhood. We learned that he was renovating his house with his father. We also learned that he had been homeschooled, that he was working for a garage door uh, repair company at the time. And really this split picture of him emerged. On the one hand, he was going to work um, while at the same time going home and planting these bombs. We had so many questions. How did he build his bombs? Did anyone else know? Why did he target some victims and not others? We eventually learned where he built the devices. He had two roommates who later told authorities that he was so secretive that he actually kept a padlock on his door. And so they never really knew what was going on in his room. I, I think for someone who doesn't know every facet of the investigation, it's certainly a, a question to say, how could somebody live in the same house as this guy and not know? Because... If you've been in the house, he lived in his room, he never left his room, he had padlocks on his room. They weren't three friends, they were three people living in the same house. So he did all of his work in his room. He didn't really socialize with the other people. 
So I think it, it's certainly within the realm of possibility. And in fact, we believe it is an accurate statement to say that the roommates didn't know. Joining the throng of press from outside Texas, Josh Margolin with ABC News was in Austin covering the case. Because of the fears connected with how much explosive material he had in his home, that a number of blocks in Pflugerville had been evacuated. So then there was a, a press conference later in the afternoon with the Pflugerville authorities, and they were encouraging people to be calm, but they still were not going to let everybody back into their homes. You know, just as a, as a side point to that, we've since learned that there was so much explosive material in the home that there was an active consideration that day of just leveling the house and not even risking law enforcement personnel by searching it. They ended up not doing that. They they felt that it was able to be rendered safe enough so they could send in robots and send people in to, to find out what they could about about the perpetrator, which is always ideal. But their point was we, they, didn't, they, they knew the perpetrator was dead and they didn't want to risk people's lives by going in there. So there was so much explosive material they were thinking about leveling the home. We continued digging into the bomber's past. His family, neighbors, anyone who could help us unravel the terror and mystery of the bombings. He was the oldest of four siblings. He did have three younger sisters. He also was homeschooled, according to some family photos on Facebook. Uh, but that did change when he attended Austin Community College. He did go there for about two years from 2010 to 2012 and never graduated. We do know that he was most recently unemployed as well at the age of 23 years old. As of late August, uh, yes, last year he was fired from his job at the Cruise Manufacturing because he just wasn't meeting the job expectations. The owner of the store described him as introverted and quiet. Uh, we're also learning that he kept the blog. He isn't posted on it for a couple years, but looking back at some of the posts, he did show his views on some controversial topics like abortion, as well as where he stood in terms of uh, his, his ideas of homosexuality. So those are up there on the internet as well. He does have a Facebook page with only about 15 friends, so you can really tell he wasn't as social uh, butterfly, to say the least. We talked to one neighbor who said he seemed nice, friendly, pretty normal from what she could tell. He was in my home and I didn't feel threatened in any way. He was very nice. But whatever was going through his mind that caused him to want to do these things, you do start to think about, wow, every day we back out of our driveway and almost end up in his driveway because the street's so small. What kept him, I guess, from wanting to hurt us? He did a horrible thing. It was horrible. And, uh, but he, he has a family, too, that, that lost a son. And as a mother of sons or any children, the loss of a child is, I can't even imagine. Sierra Davis had gotten to know Condit a few years earlier in a Christian homeschool group. It had been a few years, but she considered him a friend at the time. He was a nice guy. Um, he was a little bit forceful in some of the things he said, but he was never mean or rude. He made a terrible choice to do terrible things, but the blame is on him, not on his family. We need to focus more on taking care of those that are mentally ill, those that have tendencies to be violent. As a KV reporter working on a new project called Verify, I was working on various aspects of the case as well, helping to clear up rumors and set the record straight as much as I could. Kelly Kilmore, we've heard reports today that that was the name the suspect used on the boxes he sent through FedEx. We can verify through the FBI and APD. That is true verified tonight. 
Next up, we want to get into a question of background checks. And some of these conversations online, like the ones you're looking at, people keep posting these pages, seeming to show that Condit was a Republican or a Democrat, how much money he made, what his life was like. We want to point out this site is false in this case. We're going to move it into the false category. Anyone can get onto this site that folks keep referencing and change the information to say whatever they want at that time. Finally, we're going to talk about white supremacy a little bit tonight. A lot of folks online have been asking if that is possibly Condit's motivation in all of this. While APD said there may be some hints possibly towards motivation at this time, we have no confirmed evidence or clues to lead us towards believing it was white supremacy or any to say that it wasn't. We're going to work on answering that, leave it unconfirmed for now. But as we continued to dig and try to uncover what we could, there was one more disturbing detail that we didn't know yet. In the hours leading up to the final explosion and Condit's death, he made a 30-minute recording on his phone. On this recording, the suspect describes the six bombs that he constructed with a level of specificity that he identified the differences among those six bombs. Investigators are still going through that video to see if they can find out any more information about the suspect and his motives, but they do believe all of those bombs are now accounted for. But ultimately, the recording left us with more questions than answers. I know everybody is interested in a motive and understanding why, and we are never going to be able to put a ration behind these acts. But what I can tell you, having listened to that recording, he does not at all mention anything about terrorism, nor does he mention anything about hate. But instead, it is the outcry of a very uh, challenged young man talking about challenges in his personal life that led him to this point. That's what the story has become, that there may be no answer other than this man, as he called himself, a, a psychotic or a psychopath, and somebody who had been motivated by the, the rush of hurting people, which is just not normal. If the tape didn't reveal the bomber's motive, investigators hoped something else would. And they still wanted to make 100% sure that he acted alone, that the Austin bombings really had ended with Mark Condit's death. FBI Special Agent in Charge, Chris Combs. We went through every single computer that he had, every single hard drive, the phones, everything we could find, financial data, because one of our concerns was, did anybody else know? Was it just him? Was there anybody else connected to the case? So we have literally spent the last year going through all of those terabytes and everything that we had to make sure that he was the only one involved. And, and we've done that. And we feel very confidently that it was singular in nature. He was the bomber. No one else was involved. It would take time to know that, though. It would be almost a year before the FBI closed the case. But across Austin, you could feel a change in the air. The stress, the fear, the anxiety, it started to lift. Investigators, reporters, residents, we could all start to think about life after the bombings. Detective Rolando Ramirez with Austin Homicide. Since March 2nd, it was the first uh, night that I could actually sleep. So, you know, it, it, your body realized that you've been going through a lot of stress. And then once you realize you... you got somebody, uh, he might not hurt anybody else. That's when I felt some relief and I was able to sleep for a little while. I realized how heavy it was at the end. Once, you know, once I was able to get some rest and realized that, you know, for the last couple of three weeks, you know, life has not been the same. And, and once I got back to my routine, 
I realized how much of uh, heavy the case was. Just getting in my car, I, I truly did just let out a sigh of relief, uh, a physical sigh. Uh, I'm not, I don't do that often, but I just needed to because I just had felt like I had gone through three years of work in a month's time. And just to know that not only the city was safer, but, you know, we, we would be able to slowly but surely move on past this as a news station. Yes, it's important and it's a part of our job. Obviously, we have to keep people up to date with this type of thing. But to know that we would be able to move on as a station along with our city, it was 100% um, a relief. And it just felt good to exhale because you kind of needed to after what we had been through. I would say the department uh, and all the agencies involved noticed, you know, an outpouring of support immediately following and during um, this whole this whole time frame. Um, and then even since the release of the video recently from DPS and the department, um, that coming coming back to light a little bit. But you know, the job carried on for us. The next day, the weeks following, um, we still had operations to do. We were still getting calls from other units to assist them with their stuff. Um, and so the work continued. And so I think guys just just realizing that and that, that this was a big critical incident and no one downplays that, but tomorrow's a new day. There are still a lot of people who want to hear the bomber's tape. Brian Manley has now moved on from interim chief to Austin police chief Brian Manley. And he's vowed it will never be released. I still have the same concerns that I voiced a year ago about the release of the audio. The audio releasing that would end up on the internet where his voice will live in infamy forever. I think that it would be something that people would go to maybe for inspiration if we have people that are considering committing these horrendous violent acts. Uh, I think it would give him a level of notoriety that he does not deserve and it does nothing to make anybody any more educated about why he did what he did or how he did what he did, and it does nothing to make community safer. Instead, I only see the downside that it could inform others of missteps that he took, that he self-identified as maybe allowing us to, to capture him. And I just don't think it's wise to put that out there to better educate or, or equip someone who might try to carry out this attack in a community somewhere else. I know that people want to know why it happened. As I said earlier, I want to know why it happened. Releasing this audio will, will not give us that. So I know there's a lot of questions about releasing the audio. The reason that I personally have so many concerns about it in the FBI is he goes through almost an after action of what he did wrong, how we caught him. And we certainly don't want to put that out there so that other bad people can learn how to do it better. And, and also the fear is, in today's world, that video will be on the internet forever. And we've seen with a lot of other mass casualty events that people look back on previous mass casualty events and want to emulate them. And we certainly don't want that to happen. Over time, some details of the tape have leaked out. I think what's most disturbing on the audio tape is the fact that he wasn't done, that he had plans to do more attacks uh, of, of different size and capacity. From listening to that tape, I am 100% convinced that had we not taken him down the night that we did, there would have been further bombings in the future. And in the manifesto, you know, we were able to succeed in obtaining certain quotes from the, from the, the bombers 
confession. You know, the whole recording has not been released, but certain quotes have been able to to get out, and we have a number of them that we've reported on. And he talks about almost like a joyride, thrill-seeking element that he thought this was going to give him a rush, and it did for a while, and then it stopped. But then you think about the the human toll on the other end, and and you realize that there are lives, families that are brutally, permanently changed, and it's just so sad and terrifying. In the end, we're left with the memory of the bombings, the images of the explosions, the memory of our collective fear. Some of us are left with physical scars that will never disappear, injured victims like 75-year-old Esperanza Hope Herrera. And some of us are left with the memory of a family member who left us too soon, a 17-year-old musician, a 39-year-old father and husband. We were also left feeling like maybe our city had lost something, the feeling that it's the kind of thing that happens somewhere else. Why Austin? Why our city? For all indications and all evidence appears that it was legitimately just random places that he set these devices. Now, he... he intentionally wanted these devices to go off. He intentionally wanted to kill people. Um, we do know that. Um, this wasn't an accident. Um, so he, you know, built these devices knowing how they worked and how they functioned, and he wanted to kill people. And he, you know, obviously got off by killing people and knowing that his devices um, would kill people. I was angry because he made us go through all of this, the community. He took the peace away from Austin. And it was senseless. There was no reason behind it, uh, hurting the people that he hurt. So today, we, we don't believe, and we didn't believe back then, that the victims are connected in any way other than in his demented mind. The conversation and debate about releasing Mark Condit's final recorded confession will continue. Maybe if we heard his voice, we might be able to answer why. Why a 23-year-old man with no criminal history and no obvious message of hate or ideology or motive chose to do what he did. Those who have heard the recording, people like Brian Manley, Fred Milanowski, Chris Combs, they've all listened. They still ask why. We do know that Condit's recording ended with a chilling line. I wish I were sorry, but I'm not. Perhaps that's all we need to know. It's a glimpse into the killer's mind. But for most of us who were living in Austin in March 2018, we can't help but stop at times and think back and ask... Why? I will never say his name. I won't. I never have. I never will. Come back and go down like that. You'll be lost in time. Bomber is a production of Vault Studios and KVU. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, and other major listening platforms. You can also listen and learn more at bomberpodcast.com. Our executive producer is Will Johnson. My thanks to the people of Austin, my colleagues at KVU, federal investigators, and the men and women of the Austin Police Department.